Be in Luke chapter 19 this morning, verses 1 to 10. Perhaps you're familiar with that last verse, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, we saw that illustrated really clearly in the parables that we walk through in Luke chapter 15, where a shepherd loses a sheep. And the shepherd doesn't say, well, I've got 99 here. I'm not so concerned about the one. He, 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 will, not, he, he will not let the one remain lost. And so what does he do? He goes and he seeks the one sheep and he finds it and brings it home. And then he, he invites his friends to rejoice with him that the one that was lost has been found. And then there was a lady who, who lost a coin and she tears, tears her whole house apart to try to find this coin that has been lost. And when she finds it, she tells the whole city, what was lost is now found. I was missing this coin and now I've found it. And then a, a, a father lost a son. He didn't lose him to death, at least not in a, in a literal sense, but to abandonment when the young son said, you know what, essentially he said, I, I wish you were dead, Dad. Why don't you just give me my inheritance now and I'll be out of this family? And he went into a far country and he squandered all of his wealth on sinful living, eventually coming to the point where all he could do was work for a pig farmer. And he was in such a desperate state that he was longing to eat the food that was given to the pigs. But he came to his senses and he thought to himself, you know what, I think I'll go back home and I'll just ask my dad, can I be a hired servant? Because a hired servant is living better than, than me. And so he's no, he knows that he's squandered this opportunity to be a part of the family. But when the father sees his son a long way off, he ran out to meet him, welcomed him back as a son. And what followed? Another time of rejoicing, another party because he was lost. And now he's been found. These are just absolutely beautiful parables illustrating the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And illustrating the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and turns to the Lord for mercy. What we have in Luke 19 is the realities that we were pictured in Luke 15 played out in the life of a historical, real person. You know, Dan says, a lot of times when he's reading the Psalms, he says, you know, this, this poetry and, and biblical imagery, it, it, he had to learn to grow to appreciate that because his mind doesn't just always connect with imagery. Well, Luke 19 is for Dan. It takes the imagery of Luke 15, and, and it shows you what it looks like in an actual historical person. So we have three points this morning. The first is Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Just kidding. I thought maybe enough of you grew up singing that song. The first point is, is the lost. The lost. Zacchaeus represents the lost. It says there in verse 1, He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. You know, as we finished Luke 18 last week, Jesus is on the outskirts of Jericho, and he encountered a blind man calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And you know the crowd tried to shush him, and he cried out even, even harder and louder. 
And so as we begin Luke chapter 19, we find Jesus inside of Jericho. We mentioned that this mention of Jericho is like a geographical marker that, you know, Jesus is just passing through this city, right? It says that in verse 1. He's just passing through because he's on his way to his ultimate destination, which is Jerusalem. And inside the city of Jericho, there's a man named Zacchaeus. And if Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost, which he'll say there explicitly in verse 10, then Zacchaeus certainly qualifies as lost. He is a tax collector. Right? And, and, and you may know this. We've talked about it a bunch as Jesus has been hanging around a lot of tax collectors and sinners. Those two groups get kind of lumped together in the gospel of Luke. But tax collectors were lumped together with sinners and, and prostitutes. That's the way they would be viewed. They were considered sellouts to Rome because they would, they would essentially bid for the, for the right to tax their fellow Israelites. And the winning bid would get to be the tax collector. And the higher you bid, the more money you had to extract from your people. And then they could take advantage and abuse people because they could essentially demand whatever amount they wanted, pay Rome what Rome wanted, and then they could keep the rest. So they had to make up for their winning bid. They had to collect money uh, for themselves and oftentimes would take advantage of others. They were just, it was just assumed, if you're a tax collector, you're a robber, you're a cheat, you're a thief. It was just that, that prevalent. You may remember that a tax collector couldn't even testify in court. They were so uh, untrustworthy that their word would not stand in courts. By and large, they were excommunicated from Jewish life and society. We, we, we see something we've seen in the Gospel of Luke, but we see it again later in our own passage, the way Zacchaeus was viewed when Jesus goes into his house and they say, Jesus is, is in the house of a sinner. He's in the house of a tax collector. And they grumble about Jesus for spending time with a man like Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. And actually, the, the text says he's a chief tax collector. He's in some kind of a high station. You know, it's a little unclear what, what would distinguish a chief tax collector from a regular tax collector. It could be like guys would come together and you know they would a single one of them couldn't win the bid, so they get five guys together. Hey, let's bid for this. And then he sort of oversees the group that came together. Maybe he was hired to oversee an operation of tax collecting and other tax collectors. Or maybe it just means like he's the worst of the worst. Like Paul called himself the chief sinner to be the chief tax collector. Either way, he's wrapped up in this world. And he's identified with his sin. Where extortion and injustice was the norm. And, and somehow, someway, he's at the top of the heap. And the text explicitly tells us that he's rich. And as a tax collector, he would have become rich off the back of other people's labor. Others would work hard. They'd earn a paycheck. Zacchaeus would shake them down under threat of violence or prosecution from Rome if they didn't pay up. So this man is a wicked man. He's an unjust man. He's a man who has benefited from taking advantage of others. But he... He knows and he sees that Jesus is in town and he desires to see the text says, who Jesus was. 
who he is. Not just, not just that he desired to see Jesus, but he wants to find out about Jesus. He's, he's just curious at this point, and we've seen this with the crowd oftentimes in the Gospel of Luke, that they're sometimes just curious. They don't know him yet. But there's this large crowd, and they're marching through Jericho. Zacchaeus had probably heard stories about what Jesus had done or what he had taught. He may have heard that, hey, just outside the gates here he healed a blind man, and he wants to see who Jesus is. What is this guy about? But Zacchaeus, he has, he has a problem. Right? And we see it. There's some parallels. You know, there's... You know, chapter divisions in the Bible aren't inspired by God. They were put there by man. So like the end of 18 and the beginning of 19 kind of fit together with Jesus' ministry there in Jericho. There's some parallels between the story of the blind man and the story of Zacchaeus. For different reasons, they were both unable to see Jesus. They were both also obstructed by the crowd in some way. Remember, the blind man was shushed and told to be quiet and get out of the way. I mean, he was obviously physically unable to see Jesus. Zacchaeus wasn't blind, of course, but he's unable to see him for a different physical problem. He was short. Now, physical physical descriptions in the Bible are, are, are kind of few and far between. And it makes sense because the Bible's not just like a, a, a novel that you would, you know, like Tolkien would spend like 10 pages describing a blade of grass. And you're like, dude, can we get to the battle? Um, but he's captured in a very small time in some fantasy world called Middle Earth. The Bible goes from creation to consummation. All of human history summed up in this book. And so you don't oftentimes get like, we don't know a lot about what Peter looked like or what these other guys look like. So when you come across a description like this, it, it matters. You know, you might think about in Genesis, when you read that J- Joseph was handsome, you're like, well, I haven't, they haven't said that about anybody yet. What's the deal with that? And then shortly thereafter, you realize Potiphar's wife is after him, and you're like, oh, that's probably why. Or in 1 Samuel, when you read that Saul was tall and handsome, and you're like, oh, again, that's the first time I've seen that in a little while, describing a a person in the Bible. You realize that it's in there to demonstrate those aren't the sort of characteristics you look for in a king or in a leader, thankfully. Or, you know, you can read Judges 3 on your own time to figure out why this detail's in there, and Eglon was a very fat man. It's important. You get the point. Physical descriptions become important parts of the narrative when you see them in there. And so we see that in Zacchaeus' story, his short stature was in preventing him from seeing Jesus. And this sets the stage then for this encounter between him, the lost, the sinner, the tax collector, the one characterized by injustice and wickedness and sin, and point number two this morning, the, the seeker, the one who is actually seeking him out. We see that in verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he, that is, again, Jesus, was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the house. And to, and to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Zacchaeus 
you know, not surprisingly, maybe for a tax collector, he has some, some ingenuity, some thoughtfulness. Maybe he's grown accustomed to being short and having to figure things out for himself. But he runs on ahead and he climbs up in this sycamore tree so that he might have a bird's eye view of Jesus. So that the crowd and his shortness are no longer a problem. And, and here comes Jesus down the path. Zacchaeus is going to get his look at Jesus. He's going to get what he, what he desires. Maybe he's imagining even in his own mind that he'll get to go home to his wife and he'll get to say, you know what, I saw him today. I saw Jesus. He passed right by me. I could have reached out of my little tree and I could, have, I could have touched him if I wanted to. But he's about to get way more than he bargained for. Imagine the surprise for Zacchaeus when Jesus looks up into the tree and addresses him by name. Zacchaeus thinks he's just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Yet Jesus looks up and he recognizes him and calls him by name. One author said it this way, Zacchaeus was seeking to learn who Jesus is and discovers that Jesus already knew who he is. Not only that, not only does Jesus address him by name, but Jesus gets away with something that only he can get away with. He invites himself over to the house. And this is divine intrusion of the very best sort. Right? Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. And we've seen, we've seen times as we've walked through Luke where Jesus uses this word must to talk about his mission and coming. It's sort of a theme that develops in Luke. I must do this. I must do this. Your Bible might say it is necessary. And it's usually in conjunction with his mission, with his goal, for the purpose of his coming. You know, just for a few reminders, refreshers, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, I must, or it is necessary, for me to preach the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he says, for I was sent for this purpose. In chapter 9, he says, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the, and the scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day, rise. And so we see this connection between I must do this or it is necessary for me to do this and then whatever follows. He must fulfill the purpose for which he was sent. Now, now, now the Luke 4, that's an obvious necessity, right? Jesus came to preach good news. Luke 9, obvious necessity. He must die. If Jesus doesn't do those things, there is no salvation in his name. But, but, but then we're left with the question, then why does he use this sort of language with Zacchaeus? I must, it is necessary for me to come to your house. And I think we get our, we get our answer as the narrative develops. It is necessary for Jesus to go to the house of Zacchaeus because it's consistent with his mission to, to seek and to save the lost. Because he is bringing salvation to the household of Zacchaeus. And that is, a, that is a picture of what he has come to do ultimately, which is to seek and to save the lost. It is his mission to do so. It is a necessity because of verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what Jesus' incarnation, that's what his ministry centered on. Notice as well, the one who is doing the seeking. 
I'm sure Zacchaeus thought, you know, I'm kind of doing everything I can to, to get a glimpse of, of Jesus here. Zacchaeus thought he was pursuing Jesus, but found out really quickly that actually Jesus was pursuing him. That his knowledge of Zacchaeus, his, his command to come down and, and dwell at his house and bring salvation to his household, was part of Jesus' mission. He was actually pursuing Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the one who is lost. Jesus is the one who is seeking. As we think about the idea of being lost, think about the words of Romans 3. How, it, 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 this clearly says there's none who seeks after God. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. So Zacchaeus wasn't seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking him. According to Romans 3, if Jesus isn't seeking, then no one's seeking. He is the one who searches out the lost and finds them and rescues them. I wonder for you this morning, for those of you who have turned and, and trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, I, I, I don't just wonder. I bet that you can look back and see that even in those times where, where it seemed like you were the one drawing near to Christ, that you can look back and see now more clearly that He was the one seeking you. I wonder if maybe even during potluck, if, you, if you're able to stick around for lunch today, you might... Uh, make your conversation wiggle towards this topic of, of Jesus and your testimony and how he was seeking you out, that he pursued you unto salvation. So Jesus commands Zacchaeus then to hurry and come down. And I love that like Zacchaeus, it's like this exact same verbs even like, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. And he hurried and came down. It's like quick, immediate obedience. He does exactly what he's told to do in verse 6. He hurries, comes down, and it says he receives Jesus joyfully. The idea is he received him into his home. Jesus said, I must come into your house. He received him joyfully. I think this, this sort of in-home reception and fellowship, it's indicative. It's a picture of, of fellowship and acceptance. Jesus is gladly welcomed into the house of Zacchaeus. And again, we see something that we've seen over and over and over again, the joy associated with salvation. Luke loves to highlight the joy that follows in, in coming to Christ. Remember Luke 15, the, every one of them ended with a celebration. There's, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. There is glory and praise to God we saw at the end of Luke 18 when, when a blind man is healed. And there is joy in a scoundrel of a tax collector encountering Jesus and receiving him into his house. But the crowd doesn't see it that way, do they? The crowd has something to say about this. They're not looking at this as a, as a time of rejoicing. They're not okay with Jesus going into the house of someone who's known as a sinner, known as a cheat, known as a thief. You know, presumably some of this crowd was in outside of Jericho with Jesus. So the blind man was, 
was sort of a nuisance. They tried to shush him. But this tax collector, that's a step too far. Jesus can't go in and and dine with him. He's on another sort of unsavability level. We see that the crowd, again, I think we can presume that some of them are the same people. They liked Jesus' miracles. They, they were forced to praise God when Jesus healed the man. But they don't like his saving of Zacchaeus. They don't like his friends, so to speak. So they're complaining in verse 7 there. And when they saw it, that's the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. In one sense, they're right about Zacchaeus. right? We haven't been shy about that. In one sense, they're right. Zacchaeus was a known sinner. The crowd knew about his lifestyle. His rich life was the result of ripping others off for his own gain. What the crowd missed, though, is what happens to a person when they do joyfully receive Jesus. When salvation comes to any person, when the pursuit of Christ, when Christ pursuing someone finally results in a yielded heart in faith and repentance, there's such a significant change in that person that they're no longer known as a sinner, they're known even as a, a saint. If you are in Christ this morning, it no longer matters the sort of sin that used to characterize you. Whether it be drug addiction, adultery, drunkenness, or legalistic self-righteousness. That is not your identity any longer. You are declared righteous in Jesus. And you are treated as a saint. So in one sense, the crowd is right. Jesus is dining with a sinner. But in another sense, Jesus isn't just kicking back. He's worked in this man's life to change him. And we see the evidence of that radical change that has happened in Zacchaeus in verse 8. Look at it. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. We see this change that has happened in Zacchaeus, and that leads us to point number three this morning, seeking and saving. This is the purpose of the incarnation. It isn't really clear in the text just how much time passes between verse 7 and verse 8 or, or where, they, where they go. Presumably they're at Zacchaeus' house. But you know, when we were in Luke 7, we saw that like these dinner parties were sort of social things. People would come and go. And, and, and so as we get to like the dialogue, it seems like there's a crowd there. Jesus doesn't address Zacchaeus as you. He says, he is the son of Abraham. Presumably, there's a lot of people around. So it would make sense that this is at Zacchaeus' house. He's joyfully received Jesus into his house. But these seem like public 
remarks here in verses uh, 9 and 10. So maybe, again, dinner became a, a larger event, a larger social event. But what we see Zacchaeus proclaiming about himself, we might call this the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. To repent is to, to have a, you know, the simple common definition, to have a, a change of mind that leads to a change of, uh, of action. It is to turn, to go in a different direction. Remember in Luke 3, when John the Baptist was, was preaching, he told the crowd to repent and then challenged them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And there was even tax collectors there. And they said, what does it look like for us to repent and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And John the Baptist said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Quit ripping people off. That's what, that's what fruit looks like in your life. That's the, the, the evidence of repentance and faith in, in your life. Do your work honorably and do it with fairness to your neighbor. Stop taking advantage of people. No more bribes, no more kickbacks, no more extortion, no more threats. Do your work honestly and before the Lord. And so in verse 8, Zacchaeus' proclamation is those sort of, that sort of fruit. It's the evidence that he has truly turned to the Lord. That he has a new master. He will no longer serve the God of money. But he's turned away from that. And for a tax collector, we saw back in chapter 3, as we see what Zacchaeus says here, the fruit of that repentance is generosity and restoration. Generosity and restoration. Zacchaeus resolves to give away half of his income, half of his money, and to restore fourfold to those he has defrauded. Now, I, I don't know, the ESV says, you know, if I have defrauded anyone. I don't, I don't think he means, I'm not sure if I have. You know, it's not, it's not like that weak apology. If I've offended you, I'm sorry. I don't think he means, I'm not sure if I have, but if I ever figure out that I have, then I'll try to make it right. That doesn't make any sense. It would be like Zacchaeus saying, I haven't done anything wrong, and I'll never do that again. That doesn't make sense. Instead, it's more like this. For those I have defrauded, I will restore them fourfold. And this is quite a statement. There was, there was laws governing this in, in the Pentateuch, in, in the Mosaic law. And if you extorted somebody, you had to pay them back 20%, or maybe 120%. You make restitution, and you owe an extra 20%. There was a stiffer penalty in Exodus 22 for those who stole livestock or, you know, a rustler, so to speak. If you, if you sold an ox and, or if you stole an ox and then sold an ox, you had to buy like four or five oxes. So there was a four or five fold type repayment, but that was for people who, who stole animals. And so Zacchaeus seems to be taking this larger penalty on himself, even though he's more guilty of extortion and could probably wiggle out of it and say, hey, I only need to give back what I stole in 20%. And what this is, this is a demonstration that Zacchaeus is a radically transformed man. 
You know, one way we might apply this is to consider what repentance looks like. And so we might say that one of the, one of the evidences of genuine repentance, that I've turned to the Lord, he is, he is now my new master. I used to live for this. For Zacchaeus, it was money. He was rich. We've seen Jesus' warning about the, the danger of riches. And now he's willing to be generous with it, give it all away. So it's not, that, it's not that his generosity is going to transform him, it's that he has been transformed, and now the evidence of that is that he's willing to share and to give and to restore. So one of the evidences of genuine repentance is a willingness to actually take on the consequences of your son. You know, we were listening to a member interview once as elders, and we were listening to a, a young lady who said, man, when I came to Christ, I had to take responsibility for what I'd done and the people that I'd hurt, and I had to go to each of them and ask their forgiveness. Well, we understood that to be evidence of genuine repentance and faith. Wow, she's willing to take her sins so seriously that she's willing to, to go back and restore these relationships that were broken because of sin. It's evidence of a heart change. If... I've never had this personally. Maybe Dave and Teresa have, or maybe we will. But if, if a person comes to counseling and they confess to a crime, you know, we're obligated to report that anyways. But what's their attitude? What's their demeanor? Are they willing to take on the consequences of their crime? Well, this is evidence of a heart change. A person who just wants to wiggle out of consequences. You know, get out of the penalty for their, for their behavior. You know, that, it's very, very possible to try to use Jesus to still serve yourself. Right? I just kind of want to get out of this situation so maybe Jesus can bail me out. It's still selfish at the core. Zacchaeus demonstrates true repentance. Another evidence of, of genuine repentance is a sacrificial love for others at great cost to yourself. This is what God produces in His people. He produces a sacrificial love for others at great cost. This promise that Zacchaeus makes to give away half of his goods, I mean, that's no joke. This is a rich man. That's a lot of money that he has to just cut it in half. And then how much of the half that's left goes to repay everybody that he's defrauded. That's a lot of, that's a lot of money. But because of the work of Christ and him, he now desires to be generous. And what's he doing? He's loving his neighbor. He's loving his neighbor now. You know, if, if the fruit of repentance for a tax collector, if we would say it negatively, stop taking advantage of people, well, what's the positive command? Love your neighbor. You were loving yourself. You were serving yourself. Now, go and love your neighbor. And the fruit of genuine repentance and faith is love. The Apostle John goes so far as to say it this way in 1 John 4. I think Nate mentioned this in Bible Hour a couple weeks ago. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God. And because God is love. So self-sacrificial, generous love for others is a mark of genuine faith in Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6, which I would argue the rest of the fruits kind of flow from. Love sits at the top of that list for a reason. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6. It's the result of abiding in Christ in John 15. What, is it, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What well, means to bear fruit? What does it mean to, to bear fruit? To keep my commandments, Jesus says. And then what does he say? This is my commandment, that you love one another. That you love one another. When a person comes to Christ, they begin to have new affections, new desires, new loves. And if you want to broadly just understand what these new desires are, it's love for God and love for people. Love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God and love for God's people, the church. This chief tax collector, the one known for his riches, now becomes an example of what it is to love your neighbor with money. What is it? With generosity and love. Generosity and love for others. So we see in Zacchaeus, again, not that his, not that his repentance, he's, he's, he hasn't even done this yet. He's just, he's just saying what he's going to do. So it's not his repentance earned the right to have Jesus. Instead, it's that Zacchaeus is bearing fruit and keeping with his repentance. He is a repentant man. And so if, if we're right contextually, then that Luke 18, the end of Luke 18, and the beginning of Luke 19 are, are two stories centered in and around Jericho, and they work together. We might say it this way, the blind man demonstrates faith. Remember, Jesus commended his faith. And we said there's a blind man who actually had greater spiritual perception than the people in the crowd who could actually see. And he threw himself at, at, at the mercy of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. The blind man demonstrates the necessity of faith. And Zacchaeus demonstrates the necessity of repentance. And those two are back to back, I think, for a reason. The presence of repentance implies faith. These two stories work together to answer the question that was asked by the disciples earlier. Well, who can be saved? Well, the one who has faith and repentance. And this faith and repentance of faith, we said if you weren't here last week, it's reliance, it's trust, right? In a human sense, we might say you walk out on a dock and there's a boat there, and yeah, you can believe that the boat exists, but will you step into the boat? Will you trust the boat to hold you? So you're relying on that boat to hold you up out of the water. It's reliance, it's trust. Specifically, biblically, it's, it's reliance that Jesus Christ became the substitute for you, for your sins. That you might receive His righteousness. And repentance is a turn of direction. You have a new Lord. You have a new Master. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have one without the other. It's not that you... Well, I've, I have faith, but I haven't yet turned to Christ... 
That doesn't work. Or you can't say, well, I've turned away from sin, but I've yet to embrace Christ by faith. To do one is to do the other. They're same, two sides of the same coin. One theologian says, it kind of illustrates it this way. It's like, you know, you're standing next to Christ, but you've, and you need to embrace Christ. You know you need to embrace Christ, but you've got this huge, huge boulder in your hand called sin. And you, can't, you cannot embrace Christ without repentance, right? You can't embrace Christ without letting go of, of the boulder. So these are two sides of the same coin. One implies the other. If you're going to embrace Christ, you're going to let go of sin. So in light of the implied faith and the evidence of faith or, or repentance that, that we see demonstrated in Zacchaeus, Jesus pronounces that salvation has come to this household. The salvation refers to the restored relationship with God that Jesus came to accomplish. There's restoration here. And what's interesting, what Jesus does is he ties it to Zacchaeus's status as an Israelite. Since he also is a son of Abraham, he says. Remember we said earlier how tax collectors were treated. They were ostracized, they were removed from Jewish life, and Jesus says salvation has come to this household since he too is a son of Abraham. In the judgment of the crowd, Zacchaeus had forfeited his right to the promised blessings that were coming to the house of Israel. He had collaborated with Rome and therefore disqualified himself from the promises that were given to Abraham. But Jesus' statement reminds the crowd that the, the, the mark of, of being a son of Abraham is not a lack of personal son. It's not what, how I've treated Rome. The mark of being a son of Abraham is repentance. Again, we're leaning really hard on, on Luke 3 here, but I think it's, it's right. Because that's what John the Baptist warned the crowd about in, in Luke chapter 3. He said, don't suppose that you're a child of Abraham because you were born an Israelite. Don't suppose that because God could take these rocks and he could turn them into children of Abraham if he wants to. And what's John the Baptist doing the whole time? He's calling them to repentance and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So Zacchaeus is sending to cancel his opportunity to cry out for God for, cry out to God for mercy. He could still become a partaker of the blessings given by the Holy One of Israel if he repents and believes. He demonstrates that he is indeed a son of Abraham by his repentance, by his repentance. And this is a work of Jesus, both repentance and faith. This is the purpose for which he left heaven. And he took on the fullness of, of humanity, being God from all eternity and taking on humanity. Jesus says it very clearly there in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This looks back to uh, Ezekiel 34, where the shepherds of Israel failed. 
And Jesus has already indicted the Pharisees as, as evidences of these shepherds who have they failed to shepherd the people towards God. And now there's all these sheep that are lost. And God says in Ezekiel 34 that I will come and I will be the shepherd and I will seek and I will save the lost. And now Jesus comes and he says, I'm the son of man and I've come to seek and to save the lost. The four there in, in, in verse 10 points us back to verse 9. That the salvation of Zacchaeus, the, the seeking and the finding of Zacchaeus represents a fulfillment of the ministry and the purpose of Jesus. He must stay at Zacchaeus' house because he came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus has done the impossible. He just said it's impossible for a rich man to be saved. And what has he done? He just saved a rich man. He's the initiator of salvation. He is the author and finisher of our faith. What is impossible with man has become possible with God. Because Jesus' mission is one of, of search and rescue, of seeking and finding. And the reality is, if you know, we mentioned Zacchaeus' son and the injustice there, and if we downplay what it is to be lost, right? If we downplay the reality of our, our state before God, then we we inherently then downplay what it is to be rescued. We might think about it this way. I don't know if you remember seeing this in the news. Back in like 2018, there's these 12 young boys and their soccer coach. They go into this cave and it's in Thailand. I don't know if you remember that in the news, but like these kids, they end up in a terrible situation as this monsoon moves in way earlier than they thought. And it began to fill this cave up with, with water. And where they once walked, where they once just strolled in, has now become just a, an absolutely torrential river. And they're trapped in this small cavern, and there's water on each exit, so they've got limited air supply, they've got limited time, they've got no resources, no supplies. Eventually, they'll just deplete all their oxygen, they'll fall asleep, and they'll die. And on the face of it, rescue seemed absolutely impossible. It took the best divers in the world hours swimming with the best gear against the current to go find, even miraculously find, the cavern where these kids are. And you wonder, man, how in the world are they ever going to get these kids out? Well, humanly speaking, it, it took military personnel, it took medical teams, it took Americans and Britons and Thai folks coming together took the most skilled divers in the world to pull off this miracle and they swam each of the kids out after they injected them with anesthesia. It's crazy. It's crazy. That's the reality of the situation. They were going to die and by a miracle they were brought out to safety. Nearly impossible odds, likely death, people putting their own lives on the line. The last ditch effort was anesthesia. Because if not, the kids die anyways. Now imagine if I told the story a little bit differently. If I just said, hey, did you hear about the kids in Thailand? What about them? They were stuck in a cave. What happened? They got them out. 
right? I didn't, I didn't quite tell you the gravity of the situation, the hopelessness of the situation. And so when you say they got out, oh, probably some people just walked in there and got them out. If you understand their dire state, you realize how miraculous the rescue is. And so for us this morning to downplay the reality of what it is to be lost, to be without God, to have a darkened heart and without understanding, to downplay the gravity of our rebellion against God and the fact that we'd all, like sheep, we'd wandered away, to downplay that is to downplay the rescue. To downplay what it took for Christ to accomplish salvation. And and we might just say it this way, to make light of sin is to make light of the gospel. To make light of sin is to make light of the gospel because for Jesus to accomplish our rescue required his very life. And he willingly laid it down in order to fulfill his mission. To seek and to save the lost. That was the purpose for his coming. And as we prepare to take communion this morning in just a moment, we should be reminded of the gravity of our lostness, that we were not seeking Him. Yet He came and sought us. And His seeking, the fulfillment of His mission, required His beaten body and His shed blood. And we'll remember that in just a moment as we observe communion. But let's pray and we'll sing to the Lord. Thank Him for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful. We are reminded of our state before Christ. Thank You that He came to seek and to save the lost. Thank You that when we had hardened our hearts, when we had rebelled, when we were at enmity with You, Jesus came and took on our penalty on His shoulders. And Your Spirit gave us eyes to see the glory of that Gospel, granted us faith and repentance. Thank You, Lord, to You, not to us, not to our name, but to Your name be glory. In Jesus' name, amen.